Would you please stand for the reading of the scripture? The scripture today is from Psalm 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory in the heavens. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You have made them a little lower than the angels, and crown them with glory and honor. You have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, and the animals of the wild, the birds in the sky, and the fish in the sea, all that swim the paths of the sea. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the word, world. The word of the Lord. Charlotte. Okay, it's good to be back with you all. I've thought about you the last few Sundays as we've been worshiping. We, we got to worship at a couple of very old historic Anglican churches. Uh, one of them in Quebec City was called the uh, Cathedral of the Holy Trinity, a first Anglican cathedral built outside of the British Isles. A very, very historic place, gorgeous architecture. Uh, in the back is this massive uh, gallery organ that it, it might take up as probably half the space of our sanctuary, just this huge organ. There was, we got to sit in these uh, wooden pews where you, I don't know if you've ever been to a church like this where you uh, you have to enter in, and you can actually close the door behind you. Yeah, some of you ever been. Uh, apparently, you know, it was 100 plus years ago. You would you would pay to have one of those benches, and the closer you were to the pulpit, the more you paid. Uh, and I was just thinking, wow, it's <laughs> how times have changed. And you would probably have to pay people to to get these pews uh, to sit up in these pews here. Um, but it was great to, to be there, and I thought of you all. I got to listen to Dan's sermon from last week. I haven't listened to Sam's yet, but I plan to. So one of the highlights of our trip up in Canada, Vermont and Canada, was a Zodiac boat trip we got to take out on the St. Lawrence River. We were up pretty far in Quebec at this point. Uh, and in the summer, this time of year, dozens of, uh, about a dozen species of whales come down to this place to feed. And so we got to observe a couple different types of whales. Uh, we saw a, a one shot of a beluga, one of these white whales. Out in the distance, we got to see a blue whale. So pretty cool, largest mammal uh, in the world. And then much closer, we got to see a few humpback whales. So they would emerge from the water, and then they'd breathe on top before they would uh, dive down. And you get that kind of iconic shot of the, the, the whale, uh, the, the, the fin of the tail of it. Uh, sitting up above the water. And I've, you know, I've seen, like, documentaries on whales, and I've watched 
you know, somebody goes whale watching and you look at their pictures and you're like, all right, this is, this is I'm like, all right, that's great. Not that impressive. It was totally different experience in person. Like, I felt this sense of awe, of wonder, right? The, the size and the beauty and the majesty of, of what the psalmist calls the creatures that swim the paths of the sea. Isn't that a great description? And I was reminded that the natural world has the power uh, to move us to awe and wonder, which is exactly what we see in our psalm today, Psalm 8. This almost surely emerged uh, from one of those awe-filled, wonder-filled moments. In this case, a psalmist uh, looking up at the night sky and seeing what was up there. Actually, like Sylvia talked about, there have been numerous opportunities to look up at the sky. And we know, um, we, don't, we don't know exactly who wrote this psalm. It's a it's credited to David. We don't know for sure if David wrote it. But we can imagine young David, the shepherd, out with his flocks, out in the field, looking up at the night sky on a clear night. And when he does that, when David sees the, the heavenly light stretching from horizon to horizon, he is in awe. And the response to that awe-inspiring display by David is to break out into doxology, to break out into praise of the creator of the heavens. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So whether it's seeing a blue whale swimming the paths in the St. Lawrence, uh, the stunning beauty of a night sky lit up with stars, there's moments when in the face of nature we are, in God's creation, we're moved to we're moved to wonder. I'm sure you can think of your own experiences. You don't have to travel far. You can get it right here in Northeast Ohio. But here's the deal. If you, I think, and I think we see this in the psalm, if you stare at that splendor for long enough, if you consider it, that's what the psalmist is doing, you will be confronted with the realization that in this large scheme of creation, we are very, very small. Look at the the verse 3, so David, the psalmist, starts out in awe and wonder, but look where he arrives. When I consider your heavens, looking up, seeing the stars, the work of your finger, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them? Human beings that you care for them. You can just feel the movement in the psalm shifting from a vertical look up into the heavens at the vastness of a starry sky, listening on wonder to himself, which compared to this glorious sky is really not that impressive. From the glorious heights of the heavens, he comes crashing back into earth, uh, and he's not that impressed. There's this huge chasm between there, uh, the planets and the stars, the one who, who flings those from his fingers, and us. Let's just be honest. We, some of us had a hard time getting out of bed this morning, right? We're pretty frail creatures. We're pretty small creatures. There's a big chasm, and what do we do with that? Um, and think about this for a minute now when you and I, hopefully you've gotten out, I'm sure you have gotten out away from human light and you've seen what a spectacular scene it is to look up at the heavens and the stars. We know so much more now than, than the psalmist would have known, right? We know, for example, that the second closest uh, star to planet Earth is called Proxima 
Proxima Centauri. Proxima Centauri is 4.3 light years away, or about 25 trillion miles away. We, we just got done driving about 2,300 miles to, to Vermont, Quebec, and, and back. And like, if you, you can drive that, you're like, this is a long way, right? 2,000 miles is a long way, right? And so one of these kind of comparisons they, they do to try to get your head around the distance is that if you were in a car at 60 miles an hour to this second closest star, uh, it would take you 48 million years to reach. Right? So we've, you've done these exercises before. We are, uh, in, in the real big scheme of things, very, very puny in our size. And also, you can take that out into our lifespan, right? So scientists tell us that these stars that we're looking at are probably between 1 and 10 billion years old. Uh, you know how long you and I can expect to be around? About 4,000 weeks. 4,000 weeks. Uh, in his book, 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals, Oliver Berkman opens his book by saying this, the average human lifespan is absurdly terrifyingly, insultingly short. It's a great way to start out a book. It really is. It's just insulting how short uh, our lives are. And I think something about that number of 4,000 weeks, at least for me, really hits home how short our lifespan is. So here's the thing. You've got to be careful when you start considering, like as the psalmist is. You've got to start being careful when you think too hard because you start to work out these logical conclusions which can turn a beautiful night of staring at the sky into an existential crisis where you ask this question, what is mankind? Right? That's the question the psalmist is asking. It's a great question. Who are we? In the vastness of creation, our smallness, our puniness, who are we? And we know, of course, that now, again, what do we know? We look up into this night sky, and we know that this night sky is just one uh, part of a solar system that's part of a huge galaxy that's part of uh, billions of galaxies, right? We, who, who are we in light of that? You know, of course, we can't really, you can't really stay in that space very long, can you? I mean, it's like, you know, try to imagine eternity, right? How long can you actually uh, think about eternity in your mind? Not very long, right? Same thing with the vastness of creation ourselves. Uh, we, we will eventually begin to turn our gaze from uh, the heavens to a screen that's about 4.7 inches uh, in dia and wide in glass, and it may not fill us with quite as much awe and wonder, but, but it helps us distract ourselves from these questions. It makes us feel like we matter. See, if you pull out your phone, someone's looking at you. You're seen. You matter. You get just a little taste of glory from your phone, right? And the reality is we need validation from the outside. Uh, we need to be seen and affirmed from the outside. Like, no matter what, whatever anybody tells you, the positivity movement, it doesn't work to tell yourself, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone people like me. <laughs> did, did that work for anybody? <laughs> Thank you, Elizabeth. It never, like, it never works. So, like, it's like, no, that does not work. You need glory and you need honor to come from outside of yourself. And so we search for someone to look at us, to gaze at us, to, to, to just something, and we turn off into a 4.7-inch glass screen. But we need more than that. We need purpose. 
We need to feel like we're doing something that matters. Like I think, I, I know most of you now, work matters to most of us, right? I think we care about work, whether that's our vocation, um, whether that's work around the house, whether that's mowing. Um, it gives us a sense of purpose, right? And I think what often is really purposeful is when we realize we're participating in something beyond ourselves. We're helping people out as nurses or teachers or, or whatever. We're, we're, we're creating a product that's good for society. We're helping people out. We may not, as, as Steve Jobs famously put it, be putting a dent in the universe, but we're doing something that lasts, right? Let's look up. Let's consider that. Let's consider our careers. Let's look up at the, universe, at the sky. Let's actually consider the closest star to us, which is actually the sun. The sun's pretty impressive, isn't it? It's uh, this massive ball of energy that keeps all of us alive. Uh, you know, scientists tell us it's this churning engine of fusion fuel, and as long as the sun has fuel, it will keep on burning. And it will, at this point, it will burn for a long time. Scientists tell us somewhere you know, about five billion more years. It has enough energy to burn for another five billion years. But even that will burn out. Even the sun will sputter and die, and with it, of course, Earth will too. All right, so, so, all right, so maybe we shouldn't put so much stock in our work. What about family? Right, family matters. How could family not matter? It's our legacy, right? My glory and my honor are in my children and my grandchildren. Let's, let's consider this for a minute. I imagine you all know quite a bit about your parents. I know quite a bit about my parents. What about your grandparents? We know a fair amount. Great-grandparents, less, but I think I know. I have a, a daughter who's named after a great-grandparent. I know what they did. What about great-great-grandparents? How much do you know? I know next to nothing, which means you and I will be remembered at most for a couple generations, and even that's pretty minimal until even our own flesh and blood doesn't know who we are. Like, don't get mad at me. This is the writer of Ecclesiastes. Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. There is no remembrance of men of old. Those who are yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow. Let's get back to our question. What is mankind? All things considered, not much. I think that's the only logical conclusion you can come to by actually considering the heavens. Which, so we're in the book of Job. I hope I plug this enough where I can get everyone on this in the midway reading Bible plan. We're in Job. How's that going? Is that fun? Yeah, that's good. I hope, <laughs> I hope so. At one point, I think we get to it this week, uh, Job's friends, Bildad, uh, he's comparing God to humans, and he says this. This will, this will cheer you up. How much less a mortal who is but a maggot a human being who is only a worm. Again, we, we try to ignore this fact. The reality is the only logical conclusion of considering all this is that we are very puny creatures that are, live lives that are like vapor. And you can go a couple different ways. If you don't actually believe in God, then you must struggle with the logical conclusion that we are an accident of the universe which has no meaning, which has no purpose, and will soon burn up. Right? We try to talk all about we're going to live meaningful lives. Just put that in the context of a son dying in five billion years. Whatever is meaningful is gone. What about we, most of us, I think we believe in God. We're still left with a problem because then in this vast creation, 
This God who spins planets and stars from his fingers, why would God pay attention to us? Get, get your Sunday school kind of stuff out of your head and just think logically. Why would that God pay attention to you? Like This is a, this is a cheerful post-vacation sermon, isn't it? Um, no, we're going we're gonna to make a turn here. I'm just trying to do what the psalmist is doing. Right? I'm just trying to get us to stop and consider what the psalmists say and look up and say, what are we? And the only logical conclusion is not much. But that's not the conclusion the psalmist comes to, is it? What's the conclusion the psalmist draws from it? There's a second moment of awe in the psalm. See, the psalmist moves from the awe and the wonder of the starry night sky and the creator God who spun, finger, uh, spun moons and stars from that to the awe and wonder that this God is mindful of us, is aware of him, sees him, notices him, cares for him. How does the psalmist know this? Well, almost surely in his mind, the psalmist is going from the starry heavens to himself to Genesis 1, the creation account. Y'all, most of us know this account, but think about this account in light of the stargazing. God begins with, let there be light. God calls the light good, creates day and night. From there, the waters are separated from the sky. Land is then separated from the sea. And then God takes these spaces and God begins to populate them. Right In the sky, he puts sun and stars and moon, Proxima Centauri. In the water, he puts the great creatures, the blue whale. In the sky, the birds of the air. And on the land, he places us humans, small, puny creatures compared to what has preceded. But it is us that is given responsibility over all the living creatures. God calls all of his creation good, and yet we are the only part of creation that are called very good. Right? The blue whale is good, and we are very good. Proxima Centauri is good, and somehow you and I are very good. Why? Because we're the only ones that bear the image of God. Like, do you understand how illogical that is among all that we've talked about? That it is you and I that bear the image of God. If we are honest, again, we are not that impressive. And yet, shockingly, in the creation narrative, who is the culmination? Who is the pinnacle of creation? It's us. Not only that, but we are named royalty in this psalm. Look at verse 5. You have made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them. Listen to that word, crown them with glory and honor. This is royal language. Humans are crowned like a king is crowned with glory and honor. And not only that, we are given responsibility. We're given purpose. Verse 6, you have made them rulers over the works of your hands. You have put everything under their feet. So, so the earth is actually placed under human authority, which is what the language of under the feet. God has all power. God gives humans the authority over earth. And oftentimes we've, we've badly misused this. We've used this as language of domination to exploit creation. This is not the Bible's understanding at all. The Bible's understanding of dominion is not exploitation. It is careful stewarding of creation, which if you look around our world today, we are not doing such a good job with that. But humans are granted the caretaker role for the worth and all that is in it. The earth belongs to the Lord, and so the Lord has the authority to put that under our feet. 
And this Roy, this what's interesting is if you look at the time of the psalmist and the time of the creation account in Genesis, where that emerged, this is not the norm. We can we take this for granted. We're pretty special. We're made in the image of God. Go back and look at how uh, people and societies in that time understood God. There's a story, for example, a creation story in this part of the world that goes like this. There's these younger Mesopotamian gods who are given all this hard work by the ruling gods. Okay, you've got the ruling gods, and you've got these lower gods, and the lower gods are given the job of digging the Tigris and Euphrates valleys, river valleys. Well, eventually, these younger gods, they get tired of that, and they rebel against the, the other gods. And they're like, we're not doing this work anymore. Okay? The, the, the lower gods, they want to find replacement for this labor. Who do, what do you think they do to, find the, to make the replacement? They make humans, <laughs> right? That's the story. We're humans for, therefore, cheap labor. Contrast that with the creation account in Genesis and what the psalmist is saying here. Humans aren't cheap labor. In the biblical account, humans are royalty. How could this, how can this be? Such a lowly creature, if we're honest, when compared to the blue whale and the stars, how could we be given royal status and royal responsibility? Like the only way that's going to happen is if it comes from the Creator. See, this doxological psalm, this psalm filled with wonder and praise, is centered on the Creator of God. It begins with Creator God, and it ends with Creator God. And as impressive as the night sky is, as the moon and stars are, a uh, to a creator, there's one that is even more impressive, humans. Meaning that's the only way in our human frailty, in our human smallness, in our human puniness, that we can have glory and honors if it's granted to us by the creator. See, see our glory and honor is inextricably linked and bound up with the glory and honor of God. Right? If, you, if you really seriously, again, as we have, consider the vastness of the universe, you have to take one step farther and say there's something beyond that vastness. And we come to the conclusion that that is God. That is the only one who can now give us glory and honor. That's the only logical conclusion we come to. If not, we are in a logical conclusion is despair. That's not it. That's not what happens, and that's not the conclusion the psalmist comes to. Among all the awe-dropping, the jaw-dropping moments in this psalm, here's what I think is most stunning. It's not the vastness of creation of the universe, which is awe-inspiring awe and wonder-filled. It's that the creator of the universe sees us. Let me just think about everything we've talked about, that this, somehow this creator sees us. Andy Crouch, in his book, The Life We're Looking For, he talks about how... Recognition, being seen, is the first quest of human life. So think about it. a baby is delivered. Uh, that baby has a few startled cries. And typically what, what doctors tell us is that the first hour is called quiet alert. And the baby can only focus about 8 to 12 inches away. And, and what the baby is looking for, is what people tell us, is a face. And when they find those eyes, especially a face that's looking back, they lock in on them. That's what the baby is looking for. The baby is looking for another set of eyes to lock in on them. You and I, of course, don't remember that moment, but you've held a newborn, most of you, I'm sure, in your arms. And I'm a guessing that you have had the experience of looking at that newborn with your eyes locked in on them, and you've been moved to awe and wonder. 
It's a masterpiece of creation. We have a, a newborn in our congregation now. We're not that far removed from that moment, right? If you look at Josiah, it looks like a masterpiece, an awe of wonder. And we move to God and we realize that somehow the creator of the universe looks at us that way, with awe and wonder. Just, this is what we're looking for in our phones. This is what we're looking for in our work. This is what we're looking for in our kids, in our grandkids, in our spouses. We're looking for someone who's looking at us, who sees us, someone who's gazing at us in wonder and awe and love, someone whose mind is, we are consumed their mind, who bestows glory and honor on us, who tells us that we matter, that we have purpose, that we are a masterpiece of creation. But the only one that can grant that, if we work this through, is the creator God. That's the only one. We will search for it everywhere. And we'll get little tastes. But the deepest thing we're looking for is the creator God to look at us, for us to consume his mind, for us to awe him, and for him to love us. And this is what the psalmist, he's staring out in the field, and he's looking up, and he just thinks, I can't believe this. Are you kidding me? The one who created all this, who flings from his fingers moon and stars, is looking at me, is gazing at me, who sees me as a work of art, who gives me glory and honor and praise. This is too much to believe. It's too much to comprehend. And when we stare at that night sky, not only are we much more aware of what's beyond it, but we're aware of something else that the psalmist could never have known. We're aware that the creator came, didn't just look at his creation, but actually entered into the creation. Right? As much as we must struggle with the vastness of creation, I think it is even more of a struggle to try to get our minds around that this creator, God, who flings the stars and moons, Proxima Centauri, the blue whale, enters into the frailty and the puniness of creation who chooses to be formed in the womb of a young teenage girl from Nazareth and who are somehow the mystery of incarnation in the person of Jesus will emerge from that womb helpless and frail and searching for a pair of eyes to lock onto in a young girl. It's all too much if we consider it. And the only logical conclusion is awe. 